Well, I'm really glad to be back. And you know, one of the things that I noticed um, on the uh, on this new schedule, where at this point I'm back once a month, next month or the month after, I'll be here twice. But I've discovered that now that there's a little bit of a space between when I'm here and I'm not here, that the fact that I'm periodically here has so and um, enlivened. Uh, my mind that the moment that I'm finished with uh, a meeting like this, I start reading again and thinking again, not only with my mind, but with all of you in mind. So for all these weeks, I've been cutting out newspaper articles and saving little things. So I really uh, I'm grateful to you because you allow me to be thinking Dharma all the time on behalf of you. I say, oh, I'll have to take this with me and I'll have to take that with me, show and tell. I have a whole pile of show and tells here that I want to tell you about. So thank you very much for being there and for coming and for uh, allowing me to cut out newspapers and think about you. <laughs> and figure out how am I going to all get this into two hours without talking too super fast. And in fact, in keeping with our new-ish plan of... Uh, having a, a an arriving short meditation pretty soon and then having a teaching and then having another meditation and then having another teaching and maybe ending with another meditation. We'll have the arriving meditation right away. And I thought this morning, reading the newspaper this morning, I, I read three pieces of news that cheered me up and um, or inspired me about this morning. Two of them are cheerful. Um, and well, I'll tell you all three. And I want to tell you before we sit with the arriving meditation in uh, with, with the awareness that there's a fair amount of um, uh, research information about meditation and uh, those, the benefits of it, all kinds of meditations, but particularly this meditation of mindful awareness which is requires a settled down and a somewhat uplifted mind. That if you think about something that uplifts the mind, like a kindness you've done in the last 24 hours or a kindness somebody did to you or something that touches your heart and brings it out and prominent in your awareness, then your meditation is more comfortable and more settling. So I want to tell you three pieces of... Um, news that I found uplifting. There's a man named Eric Wan, who is the CEO of Zoom. Imagine CEO of Zoom, which zoomed to tremendous prominence in the last 15, 18 months. So in the article this morning's paper, he says he has Zoom fatigue. Uh, he's tired of Zooming. And he said he's now uh, made a new plan for himself that he's no longer scheduling back-to-back -back Zooms. He said he's Zoomed out. He's hoping that people come back face-to-face. -face. I thought that's so touching. Here he is. His company has done amazingly well. He said, okay, enough. Zoomed out. I want to be really with people. I thought that was very touching. I also thought a couple of weeks ago, I've been saving this to tell you, that just before 
there started to be, especially in California, okay, we're soon going to open, we're going to start to open. You can start to think about going to this, you can start to that, you can eat outdoors. If you're together with your family, you can take off your mask. That starting at the um, starting at that time they ask people well soon we're opening what's the thing that you're looking most forward to doing so what do you think people look most forward to doing hey we can raise hands who wants to guess so i have let tolan call on somebody tolan i think you can call on uh reba had her hand up reba Oh, yes, I'm mute. Gotcha. Um, uh, hugging. I think it's hugging. Hugging people. <laughs> it is hugging. It is hugging. It is hugging that people most wanted to do. Now I'm going to look at all of you. How many people knew that it was hugging that you most wanted to do? And there's been all these really touching pictures in newspapers of, of grandparents touching babies that were born in the last year grandbabies that they have not been able to pick up so far. So you can imagine. And I'm sure that everyone who heard that last sentence felt, ah, even if you don't have grandchildren or have a grand, everybody gets that. Can you imagine? Everybody wanted a hug. I found that very uplifting to know. And then the third thing that I thought about is another piece of news in the newspapers which is that some people were so frightened by the whole, we all were frightened, I think, but so really, really frightened about spreading it or maybe catching it, but mostly spreading it, that even now with time, with lots of reassurance that if you have been vaccinated and the other people have been vaccinated and everybody's been vaccinated and they come in your house, you could actually take off your mask. You don't have to sit in your mask, but in your house with your mask on. And people are afraid to take off their masks. They've gotten so frightened. And I don't find, I find that very touching. I don't find it peculiar at all because I think that, uh, that, the, uh, that the, if I put those three things together, I, I come out with the understanding that fundamentally we're really herd animals. We want to clump together with what's dear to us. You know, we are not rhinoceroses that go by themselves in jungles. They don't, there aren't herds of rhinoceroses. They make their own way. We are herd animals. We like to clump up with people. And we are now, I think, traumatized herd animals. So we can't really even now that we could settle down and hug who is kin and near and dear to us, that a lot of people are substantially traumatized. And I'm touched to think about that because the whole thing that I think about is, seems like a perfect time with the whole world traumatized. Really, this is the first time in history that everybody knew at the same time that humankind is menaced. Everybody, there's not a place in the whole planet that uh, there were that there wasn't COVID or knowledge of COVID. And uh, in 1919, 50 million people worldwide, 50 million died 
of the flu in 1919. And there were, I think, half as many, maybe less people in the world. So that would be like 100 million would die now. Could have happened. It could have happened that they couldn't have found the vaccine. You think, wow. And I, it, it seems to me, and this is really what I wanted to talk about today. Maybe I shouldn't even say because it's, well, I'm saying already, so I have to say. <laughs> I told you those other things because I thought, oh, how dear, now everybody will sit in a calm way. What I want to talk about is it's so strange to me to think that the whole world was simultaneously menaced and challenged. You think that everybody would get together and say, wow, we really ducked that bullet. We really, whew, that we came through that. And they think about life is really precarious. Who knew? A year and a half ago, we didn't know that this was on the horizon. And all of a sudden, it was not only on the horizon, it was here. And it ravaged the world. And now it seems like it's moving out. I think to myself, why doesn't, don't people think, wow, I got it. Life is precious. It's fragile. Let's, let's, let's put aside antagonism. Let's for once be on each other's side. Let's for once take care of each other instead of be in groups that have affinities to the degree of pushing other people away. Let's stop othering each other. Let's stop being antagonistic. Let's stop living, let's start living. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Why do we do that? So that's what I'm thinking a lot these days. That's what I want to talk about. Because I'm actually not, I, it hasn't happened that the whole world has forgotten about antagonism. But I'm not, I, I don't think that we know what's going to be yet. Maybe it will be 10 years or 20 years from now. Maybe this will turn out to be the inflection point where people say, you know what, we really learned it. You know, we didn't learn it immediately, but now we're learning it. Maybe everybody got softened up. So let's sit just for a little bit. Now, why don't we take five minutes? I always think that my body sits down in my chair. Sometimes before my mind arrives here too. It's still folding laundry or taking the dishes out of the dishwasher or whatever. In these five minutes, feel your body sitting in your chair or lying on your mat if sitting isn't possible for you or standing, if standing is better for you. And if you're comfortable, close your eyes and feel the whole perimeter of your body. It's not so much in your mind's eye, see yourself visually because you can't see yourself, but you can feel where your body meets the outside world. You feel a seat under you. Perhaps you feel a seat behind you. 
and your feet on the floor and your hands wherever they are. The instructions in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness Sutta is to feel the body For two minutes, bring your attention really exclusively to the awareness that your body is expanding to let the breath in and then coming back to its exhaled state. You can if you want to, if it helps you, say to yourself, breath in and breath out. Or you can say nothing and just feel it in and out. We'll do it for two minutes. And now for the next two minutes, make your awareness a little wider. So rather than just the awareness of breath emanating from your chest or the middle of your body or around your upper torso, bring it out to the edge of your whole body, your awareness, and see how your body gets bigger and then comes back. It makes a little, takes up a wee bit more space in the world around you and then come back. The edge of where your physical body, the skin envelope ends and the rest of the world begins. Feel that edge moving in and out. We'll sit a minute with that. 
I'm often left after just a few minutes of feeling the miracle of a live body still functioning, still channeling oxygen into carbon dioxide for the trees to breathe in and breathe back to us. That really human life is a miracle. All life is a miracle and precious. And at this point, the atmosphere is still working to sustain life. To not only uh, experience the gratitude of that, but the imperative to make the world a sustainable place to live in. So I invite you to open your eyes and look at the people around. So I keep thinking about the order in which I want to tell you all these things that I've been thinking about. If I go back to what I just said before we um, did that breathing exercise. By the way, did you enjoy that? I feel a difference. I feel a difference between feel my breath and feel my body. Did you feel the difference between that? I like that very much. I like to be able to do that because I think to myself, it, it's such a demonstration of we're all breathing the same air and we move into each other's space and then we move back to our own space and we move into each other's space and then back to our own space. And this planet is our shared space. And if it continues to um, move out of being menaced by the COVID, it'll be menaced by um, climate change. And I think to myself that there's a very small difference between appreciating live bodies sharing the space and the air in this planet and really becoming an activist for making a difference in the world. That um, 50 years ago when I began, almost 50 years ago when I began my Dharma training, people said all these people contemplating their navel and should be out doing social activism I think that the social activism is implicit in paying attention, that I can't pay attention to the pleasure of a breath that's unpolluted without being activated to think about climate change and what I can do to make a difference. I don't think there's really, you don't have to go from either I'm a meditator or I'm an activist. I think we have to be, I'm, I'm paying attention and therefore I'm acting for the benefit of all beings because really it's for the benefit of me. So I'll tell you what I've been thinking about. I, um, I already used the word antagonist. What if, what if all the antagonists were out of everyone's mind? What if we forgot who we were mad about, mad at? Who, if we thought, this person I can't keep in my heart, I can't even think about them. And the, 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 uh, the, the name for, did I say this morning what I wanted to call this Dharma talk when it goes in Dharma seed? I want to call it um, anyone who understands impermanence 
ceases to be contentious. It's a line from the Dhammapada. It means if you get it, that it's all, it's all passing as it's arising. And that what I do moment to moment makes a difference. Why would I do anything that puts it in the wrong direction? Why would I mess up this fragile world? I'll read you a line. I'll read you that line from the Dhammapada. I have many copies of the Dhammapada, by the way, and they're all translated a wee bit different. But one of the translations is anyone who understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. I love that. This is another way to say it. The, the Buddha speaking, your enemies will never make peace in the face of hatred. It is the absence of hatred that leads to peace. This is the eternal truth. It has to start here. We are but guests visiting this world, though most do not know this. Those who see the real situation no longer feel inclined to quarrel. That I think the no longer feel inclined to quarrel is the line about ceases to be contentious. No longer feel inclined to quarrel. I think there's a direct line between recognizing impermanence and ceasing to be contentious. You recognize things change. They change. Everything is always changing for multitudinous reasons. And by and large, we have very little control over it. What I do in this moment matters locally. But what happens in a larger sense, I'm not in charge of. I'll read you this. Didn't know how, in what order I wanted to talk about it, but since we're talking about not not be not doing away with antagonism, I used to have a I used to, I used to ask classes. So think about this. Years ago, one of the ways I was teaching is I said to people, suppose I held up a glass just like this glass, and I'd hold up a glass of water, and I'd say, suppose I told you that in this glass there uh, is dissolved a certain herb that if you drink from this glass, you will forget every grudge you had. You forget who you, who you feel antagonistic about, who are your enemies, who are your fooey people. And I say, how many people would take a drink out of this glass? How many of you would take a drink? Put up your hand or... Because some people didn't put up the hand. Somebody, Gail, says, I don't know. <laughs> you can remember, by the way, Gail, that these are the people that I don't feel like hanging around with, but I can let them live in my, in my mind. Uh, somebody, some sage said, you can put anybody out of your life. Just don't put them out of your heart. That that is the important piece of knowledge. You don't have to hang out with them. You don't have to be with them. It's the antagonism in your own heart. I'll tell you a story right away about how I am working on that. But I want to make sure that I show you this line from poem. It came from on a, um, I joined the National Poetry Society, not because I'm a poet, but I'd like to support poetry. 
Um, and here are these two lines of poetry. Whoops, can you see them? I'll read it to you. It says, there is nowhere else I want to be but here. I think that's very much uh, what the what the Buddha gave as the formula for an enlightened mind. You don't need anything to be different. You don't need more or less or something else or to get rid of or to have more of. There is nowhere else I want to be but here. I lean into the rhythm of your heart to see where it will take us. I lean into the rhythm of your heart to see where it will take us. So I move nearer to you than recoil. And we together, first of all, meet each other without antagonism. And then we are able to move somewhere. Comes from a book, a, um, it's a poem called For Keeps, like I'm in this for keeps. And it's from a book called Conflict Resolution for Holy Beings by Joy Harjo, who's a poet. How to not have antagonism in your heart. You know, I think that, well, we'll go on and then you can all make your own decisions. I don't have to. Do you, did you like that line, by the way? I, I lean into the rhythm of your heart to see where it would take us. Because here's the here's the the stanza that it's in. Sun makes the day new. Tiny green plants emerge from earth. Birds are singing the sky into place. I love that. Birds are singing the sky into place. There is nowhere else I want to be but here. I lean into the rhythm of your heart to see where it will take us. Let's see where I want to go from here. I learned a lot during the whole pandemic about impermanence. Um, and the Buddha said, by the way, that this is going back to how would I parse out that anyone who understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. I think the the principal lesson I heard I had it's not that I didn't know it before. It's not that I don't know that everything arises passes away. Everybody knows that. Last year's news, last year's election, last year's everything, yesterday's everything. That this moment is turning into this afternoon. Or this afternoon is taking over the place where this morning is. And it's already this night in London or Paris or wherever. The future is we stay right here and the future arrives and arrives and arrives. And we get to meet it with open arms and say, oh, look what's here. What can I do to help right now? Or we can recoil and say, no, no, I don't want this to be happening. I don't want that to be happening. And what the Buddha is really saying is that that kind of contention, no, no, I don't want this. Oh, yeah, this is okay, but I want more of it. This, I don't get it, so I'm not going to pay attention to it, is missing this moment and missing the opportunity to respond to this moment in a way that connects us to the moment so that we feel alive in it. That's the best sentence I said so far. I said it accidentally, but it is. 
so that I feel alive in this moment. Because that's really what we want to do. <laughs> there's a there's an old line from a song that just played in my mind. I want to live until I die. And it's a it's an old song, so it's um I don't even remember who the singer was. The, the line is, I want to live, live, live until I die. And everybody does, of course. But really means it doesn't want, it means I want to really be awake in my life. One of my teachers once said to me, it's your life, Sylvia, don't miss it. And I really think that. And so frequently you think, oh, I just have to get through this period, or I have to get through that period, or if only it were already there. But it's never already there, it's here. And the only thing that we get to choose is how, whether or not to stay awake here and whether or not to be awake and connected here. Which really means not to have, uh-oh, this person I don't like, this person I wouldn't want. I can remember who I prefer to be with but I don't have to have antagonism in my heart. Maybe I'll read this to you because this is this is the best. Well, it's a best. It's not the best. It's a best. And this is out of the newspaper maybe three days ago. And it's about a man named uh, Billy Frank Jr., a Native American truth teller, a genuine hero and role model who died in 2014 um, and he's being now um, honored. Um, every one of the states, anyone, anyone, every one of the 50 states gets to choose two statues to put in Statuary Hall in the Capitol. I didn't know that before now. Uh, I knew there was Statuary Hall. I didn't know every state gets two statues. And uh, the state of Washington is taking away a statue that it had. With a statue, they talk about the man who had previously be honored, been honored, who was really not an admirable man. Um, but we can skip that part. They're putting in a statue of Billy Frank. Is that Billy Frank uh, uh, was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Um, he's, he died in 2014, but he was awarded the Presidential uh, Medal of Freedom. He's a, a leader of the Nisqually tribe. Um, and during the admi Obama administration, he, he is a leader of that. He got the Medal of Honor during the Obama administration. And his particular lifetime struggle um, led the mon to the monumental 1974 federal court ruling on resource equality, known as the Bolt decision, awarding his people 50% of the salmon in their waters. It says he was arrested more than 50 times for practicing his treaty rights to fish for salmon. He's arrested more than 50 times and got out and contested all those arrests his whole life. Then he got the Medal of Freedom. And he said, uh, I quote, I never gave up, he said in that interview. He said, I never gave up. Getting beat, I got beat up. My tires got slashed. I got shot at. I got arrested, cursed, cussed, spit on. You name it. 
I still don't hate anyone. I think that's so monumental. I love that. I still don't hate anyone. I think about Nelson Mandela who came out from prison after such a long incarceration in a quite small cell and he didn't hate his jailers. That's such a monumental skill. It's such a monumental grace to not befellow one's own mind with a permanent hatred. How would you connect with other people if there's permanent hatred? I read, read um, a list of people who I had not known had Native American uh, genetic roots. Where did it, it said it here. Helen Keller, Dwight Eisenhower, Samuel Adams, other people with Native American roots that his wife said about him, about Mr. Frank, and this is the important part. He said, I, I don't hate anyone. His wife said about him, he's the happiest person I know. That really is the great piece of not widely recognized, that being able not to hate, genuinely not to have hate in your heart. That's what I'd like to do. I think it depends on, I, well, what, what I'm going to tell you is I'm thinking, this is my way that I'm watching, my experiment is with myself. I'm getting nicer. Um, I, can, I have for a long time thought to myself, I'd like for all the hate to be out of my heart. I'd like not to think about somebody and think, ah, because when the think, ah, <laughs> the thinking, ah, does not hurt the other person. It's my mind that has just said, ah. I'd like to be able to think about people and think, what do you know? People are like that. Hmm. that you know, I wouldn't choose to do that, but that's what people are like. The point of that is not to get a, a medal for, for not hating anybody, but to rejoice in the fact that when you don't hate anybody, your mind is not polluted with greed or jealousy or hatred or confusion. When your mind is not confused by any of those things, then you see clearly what should be done. You say, wow, look at that. What could I do? Let me see, I could do this. I could do that. I could take care of, uh, I could recycle more diligently. I can conserve um, energy. I can try to uh, fix the planet one way or another. I can teach Dharma as much as I can. What can I do to add to this pained world something that will alleviate suffering, not create suffering? And that can only happen if my mind is not in contention. I love that word. Anyone who recognizes impermanence ceases to be contentious. I have been thinking so much about how come that works. Most of you uh, know that during the last year of, well, many of you know, that during the last year of the quarantine, um, my, my husband of 65 years, uh, died. He died on February 4th, February 4th 
and he been he had the kind of lung cancer that non-smokers get. It's a genetic kind of thing, and it just happens. And um, when he died, he he was grateful for his life, and he got to pass his 89th birthday and see the birth of his first great-grandchild and get to sign his ballot, which was another thing he wanted to live long enough to do, and live long enough to see the results of the election, which was the other thing that he wanted to do. So he had things that he had goalposts that he thought about all the time of his sickness. And he had some medicine that had retarded the cancer for some months, but it, the medicine stopped working just about the time that we quarantined and stayed at home. So we had a very um, intimate uh, eight months after the nine months after the quarantine began of just being here and our intimate family visited, but that was mostly all. And um, I was aware all the time of the, as I looked around, I have seven people whose houses are all around where I live. And I thought all of these seven houses and people are all having the same big story of uh, we're all imperiled by COVID. We're all, whether we think about it or not, imperiled by climate change. We have different things going on in our individual families. So our joint families are the same. Our individual families are having different things. And I, my other family over here, their grown sons who uh, had been selected to uh, play uh, basketball for um, European teams and had left to go in a great excitement, couldn't get home because of the closed borders. And they had that problem. <coughs> and another people, another house next to me had another local problem, had a sudden illness and it got treated and they got better. And the people over here, they got a puppy. Uh, and the puppy at the in the beginning had a puppy bark that high. And that as the months went by, the puppy got bigger and his bark got now. Rah, rah, rah. And I said, he, all around, there were stories of change in these people's house, change and difficulty with the, with the sons in, stuck in, in, the, in the quarantine and the sudden medical emergency. But it came and went and the sons came home and the puppy got bigger. So if I wanted to study are things impermanent, Everything is changing all around me all the time. And my husband was, uh, I looked at him and day, not maybe day by day, but week by week, he, he was diminishing in, in strength and in physical size and could almost see him moving out of this life as he got weaker and weaker and weaker and uh, smaller. And at the same time, our grandson's wife, who was pregnant at the time, was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And it was such a juxtaposition of everything that arises passes away. And here he is about to pass away. And here is this baby about to join into the life. And it was somehow very comforting to position uh, myself and us in the great parade of everything that arises passes away. 
And the fact of his dying and his imminent death didn't seem so terrible. I mean, it's just like, this is it. Your mind stays pretty clear when you see this is it. This is, at this point, there's nothing anybody can do. It's just going to happen. And the mind stops being contentious and is pretty cool about it. Not, it's, it's poignant. It, it wasn't grievous. It was, it was sad and poignant and also uh, a cause for joy. When he made it to be able to hold his great-grandchild, we rejoiced. We took pictures of him holding her. It was great. And someday this baby will be able to say, this is a picture of my great-grandfather and holding me when I was three months old and be in the position of part of mankind, just humankind, living, being kind. They all, everything that so rises, passes away. And I think that it made me calmer and it made me less contentious, less irritable, more tolerant. Maybe that's the same as less irritable, but more tolerant. Um, let me see what story do I want to tell you about tolerant. But it, it, there were so many, I, I may have told you some of them already. People who, oh, here, I'll tell you this one. One day, the uh, when he was quite, quite really weak, uh, was the one day of the week that um, the uh, hospice worker was meant to make her visit. And we waited for her to come. He liked very much that she came. And... Um, so we did all the preparations and he was showered and he was dressed and he was sitting in his chair comfortably and waiting for her to come. It wasn't gonna be any big news, but it was a thing that happened. And um, he enjoyed her visits. And then the phone rang and she said, uh, she said to me, this is Katie and I can't come today because uh, Something has come up in emergency with one of my other people that I'm working with. So I won't be able to come and tomorrow is a holiday. I'll be there next week at this time. And I found myself saying to her, oh, that's, that's just fine. And I'm so glad that you're available for this other person who's having this crisis. And I think we all felt that way. But I, what I noticed in my own mind is that my mind seemed to have skipped the part of, oh, I'm so disappointed she was supposed to be here. And it certainly skipped the point about, well, I don't know if she should have come. Any kind of, I, all I, it went straight from, oh, that's so? Okay, so how great that she can be helpful to this other person in their more extreme travail at this point. And I thought to myself, my mind is getting nicer. I don't even have to convince it to say, well, you know, I wish you'd been here. I wish they had a backup. I wish somebody else come. I just skipped it over and I thought, you know, I think that the archaic name for Dharma practice is the purification of the mind. And I think it's true. I think the mind purifies itself when it's paying attention and when it gets it really that what's true and what's important. And it does not get caught up in stuff. See if I can think of another example. I have to tell this carefully because <laughs> sorry, it's just you. So <laughs> I'm not going to name any names, and I'm maybe going to implicate myself. Anyway, 
We're just going to go with this. Um, let's see. I'm going to disguise the people. So anyway, one of the people is, anyways, a relative of my husband's who for various reasons I was never tremendously fond of, but that's okay, um, uh, was fond of Sumor and called every week and talked to him throughout his illness. And then Sumor died and this particular relative began calling me every weekend, just as he had called previously and announced in the beginning, you know, I used to call him every week so now I'll just call you every week. And um, I'm not going to tell you any facts about why I wasn't, this person wasn't a favorite of mine, but I was kind of touched that they wanted to do that. One of the problems is, quotes problems, one of the difficulties, and maybe one of the reasons I wasn't so warmly disposed is that this person and I have different political views and uh, everybody has strong political views. And it was hard for me to not to unhook this person from their political views. So I didn't have the warmest feelings about them. And sometimes in conversations over the years, this person brought up the political views in a kind of provocateur way, I thought. So, so we started in and it's been a couple of months now and this person calls more or less regularly. And I never looked forward to it very much and I was tense during the phone calls. And a week or so ago, my phone rang. I had just, I'd been, I'd just gotten in my car. I was about to come home and um, I had my groceries in the car. I didn't put the key in the ignition and my phone rang and I picked it up and I see who it is, and it's this particular person calling me. And I feel that my mind says, ah, just like that, wasn't horrible, but I could feel that my mind said, ah. And I could feel that that was an unpleasant feeling. And I got it, that the unpleasant feeling is fueled by my stories. And it was an unpleasant feeling for me to feel. And it was unpleasant in the moment, sometime maybe later, maybe whenever we talk about the Four Noble Truths, we say life is difficult and difficulties are painful and we make them worse with the stories we tell that's the second noble truth. We make them worse by resisting them and amplifying them. So that's the first painful, ah, oh, it's this person. And the second is, there's the ah oh, in my mind, the painful is, ah, oh, do I have to do this? And I so didn't like that feeling in me because I saw it in one nanosecond and I felt it. And I thought, you're not going to do that. You're going to answer this phone now, thinking of this person that you've known for 50 or 60 years with a full unopened heart, not thinking about any of those stories. And I said, hello. And we talked five or 10 minutes on the phone. And it was a really genuine, pleasant, non-upsetting phone call. We talked about the million other things that people can talk about other than politics and world events, can talk about grandchildren, family events, personal health, all of that. And I realized at some point in that conversation that was conflict-free, because I'd put it down, 
that I really felt warmly about this person. After all, I've known them. I was married to Seymour for 65 years and I knew him for almost 70 years. And I've known this person nearly that long from when they were a young person. And I really enjoyed the phone call and I enjoyed that it was not in any way grievous or burdensome. And I just so got it that my, my suffering, the Dalai Lama says this in one famous line, he says, I recognize that I, um, I am the cause of my own suffering because of the habits of my mind. That's it. I am the cause of my own suffering because of the habits of my mind. I have the habit of saying, ah. And then as soon as you do that, ah, you think to yourself, ah, because of this, 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 and this. Leaving out the million other sweet memories that you might have about this person. The many things that don't change my worldview, but, but leave this person as a complete person with whom I don't share certain ideologies, but to make them other, do I want that pain in my mind? I hung up the phone, I was so relieved because I thought otherwise I have to think, oh, they're gonna to continue to call and da, da, da. I hope they do because I am not held hostage by my stories. Is that pretty clear to you? Does that whole story make, okay. Because I really wanna say, I am so interested in people who can say, I don't hate anybody. I think, whoa, what a great thing. I would like not to have a rap sheet on people that when people arrive in my mind or in my vision, I don't think, ugh. And I think that's one of the things, here's the good news on that, it's all good news. But I think the really good news is that I didn't do that because I figured out that I was gonna be magnanimous and get over it and all of that. I got it because in that moment, I realized that I am the cause of my own suffering because of the habits of my own mind and I could change that habit. I just have to put down the story. Now I think I made the point. I don't know. <laughs> did I make that point, Dwayne? You can, you can nod if I did. Okay, thank you. <laughs> uh, sometimes I feel like I get on a soapbox and I get so passionate. I think to myself that that particular thing that I'm noticing now, when something happens that ordinarily I would have a story about if I could skip the story, skip the annoyed and uh, just move to reaching out. What was that lovely line? I, wait, wait. I lean into the rhythm of your heart to see where it could take us. I love that. Probably have to get that book. Oh, okay. I want to show you one more show and tell. And I don't know. Uh, we could do the meditation or I could show you the show. I'll show you the show and tell. Um, this is a book that I have just finished reading. It's called In This Place Together, A Palestinian's Journey to Collective Liberation. And it's written by Penina Oh, yeah, there we go. 
Penina Eilberg Schwartz. It's not so easy to see, but um, I'll read you some of the back cover. This is a bold story of an all too ordinary Palestinian boy, prematurely made into a man, narrated by a white American Jewish woman who tells the Palestinian story while opening a myriad of taboo topics without closing any. No matter the angle from which you enter this book, you will exit it slightly upended. For that alone, I invite you into the constructive uneasiness that many more will need to feel before any change on the ground bears fruit and we can all taste equally. So um, Suli Khatib was 14 years old when he was um, a, a Palestinian living in the West Bank who was arrested and sentenced to 14, 15 years in jail, in an Israeli jail, which he did spend and often tremendously um, terribly. Really, it's hard to read about the degree of unkindness that he was treated with. Unkindness isn't even the right word the degree of torture and pain that was caused and it's painful to read about. Penina, uh, who must be, I don't know, it's a young woman. Um, and uh, she, uh, her mother has been very active in, her mother is Amy Eilberg, who's a, uh, who's a rabbi who's most well known for interfaith dialogue around the world. So in a sense, it's not surprising to me that Penina has written this book, but it really is an amazing book because uh, she tells his story as if she's a narrator of a story and not in it and not emotionally involved with it. She spent, I don't know how much time over time with Suli traveling here, traveling there over years to write this book. And it's beautifully written and very straightforward about then this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. And the end of it, or sort of not the end really, but where it brings us to the end is he ends up out of prison and a tremendous peace activist and one of the co-founders of um, Combatants for Peace. So if you're interested in that, you can, you can, um, Look, uh, you can Google Combatants for Peace, which is an organization of former combatants, Palestinian and uh, Israeli, whose, uh, uh, whose point is a nonviolent response, not to argue out who is right, but the condition in, in themselves and in everyone that they can work with, the uh, absolute, um, commitment to working things out non-violently. They all study it, they are committed to it, which means you have to listen to the other person saying what they're saying and allow it in. I don't know how many people, uh, including myself, uh, in the last year uh, said something like, 
Uh, I watch a lot of news, but when X comes on, uh, or Y is about to speak, I turn off the sound because I can't listen to it. I don't want to see it. I want to hear it because it's too upsetting to me. And to listen to somebody who's saying something that's terrible for you to hear, uh, and you have to stay there and listen to it, it requires such amazing um, dedication, such amazing poise. It's um, Anyway, the book is astounding. And um, the thing that I, any number, I could have read you any one of a number of parts of it, but the one of the very interesting endpoints of it is when this protagonist, this Sui Khalib, says uh, that um, he began to notice. First of all, while he was in prison, he learned to read and speak Hebrew very well. And he also, he went to prison as a young man. He educated himself because he had, he was able to get all kinds of books. So he has all kinds of philosophical training and access to the whole world of education. But he said how surprised he was one day in some situation where he had a reaction to what was going on. And he said, I realized I was thinking like an Israeli. It's like, I wasn't thinking like myself. I was thinking like an Israeli. And that really startled me. It's uh, because you, you think about, I think about having a heart that's uh, open to listening to how does the other person think. But if I suddenly began to think like the other person thought, uh, especially in things that I feel, ah, oh, I could never feel like that person feels, that would be very strange. And actually it's hard, it was, it's hard for him because his family and the people in his, in where he grew up with also recognizes that he has changed his mind. I wanted to get to that line to say it to you because it was, I don't know if it still is, I changed my mind is the um, sort of watchword of, uh, or phrase of uh, Tricycle Magazine, which is now an online magazine. But uh, way back 30 years ago, whenever Tricycle began to publish, they used to have a meeting on uh, in Central Park every summer. It was called Change Your Mind Day. And uh, the, the, the banner slogan was, I changed my mind. And I love that idea. Um, I tried to get my uh, the, the company that published my first book to call it, I Changed My Mind, meaning to say I took up this practice and it changed my mind. And uh, they wisely said, I can't do that because we won't sell any books because that sounds like a wishy-washy title. I changed my mind, so what did you change? You know, it doesn't, it, it's too abstruse, no one will get it. But to really change your mind and to not to step out of the context of your mind to think like the other person thinks. That must be so amazing to be able to do it. I think about myself sometimes for some period of time in, um, in uh, I think the 1980s, I can't even remember. Um, I was a student of a certain kind of um, 
introspection based on keeping a journal. And um, it was called journal keeping. It was invented by a Jungian um, analyst named Ira Progoff. And um, you taught it to other people. So it was a, people did it in a group together, but they didn't so much share what they'd done. It was just writing in a group, everybody writing in their journal with certain prompts. And one of the prompts, you might want to do this later on on your own, is you take a piece of paper that's a lined paper and you number from one to 12 and you write 12 sentences, that's all. Then the last sentence is right now in my life, la da da, so and so is happening and I'm dealing with this. Right now in my life, uh, I'm adjusting, I'm discovering what it is to live an unpartnered or whatever it is. I want to write about that. But it, uh, and uh, the instructions were don't make them at five year intervals, make them just things that shifted your life, like tacking points if you were in a sailboat, then that way, then that way, then that way, things that changed your life. And they pointed out, and it was true, that every time you wrote that list, maybe a year apart, two years apart, what stands out in your mind, what comes back to you is what was important from this vantage point. And it was very interesting because I never wrote the same thing twice. The only thing that you always wrote was the, at least I always wrote, was the first, he said, you write the sentence, I was born, da da da, one sentence, whatever. And then you go on from there. And it was a very interesting project. You might want to do it sometime for yourself. But the first line that I always wrote was, I was born on July 24th, 1936, the only child of immigrant Eastern European Jews. And then I went on from there. And I was thinking about that when I read this book and uh, the Suli saying, I'm thinking like a, um, I'm thinking like an Israeli. I think that I think out of the context of, I was born in July 24th, 1936, the only child of immigrant Eastern European Jews, that I think out of that template that, uh, that made a certain impression. It, it means so many things. It means it was a time of big anti-Semitism in the United States. It means it means a lot of things. It means when it's announced that maybe there's going to be a Muslim registry that everyone who's a Muslim is going to have to sign up. I heard that while I was driving in my car five years ago. And I had to pull over to the side of the road because I got so frightened by it. And I am not Muslim, but... Uh, the, the idea that you'll have to identify your own faith was startling to me. Um, and I wondered about it. I've been, particularly since I read this book this week, I think when Suli starts to think as an Israeli, what's he thinking that he didn't think before? Or well, what thought is he? How can you put that down? So anyway, I really, I really recommend this to you. It's also written very well. So that's what, that, that was my charge for today. I really wanted to say, I so admire somebody who can say, I'm thinking like an Israeli. I'm feeling like an Israeli. I have become in the place of the other person. 
I don't hate anybody. I don't think I, I, I would say about myself that I don't hate anybody, but I don't want to uh, anybody either, you know? I really want to have a, a mind that doesn't do that. And I'm very inspired that I think I got nicer over the last year. I do. I mean, maybe that's like uh, <laughs> not nice to say, but I, you know, I think it's true that I am kinder and more thoughtful and we'll see. I mean, I wasn't bad before, but I feel myself not so irritated, not so easy to get annoyed and certainly easier to put stuff down. It's like, I think when, uh, when, when you suddenly see what's really important, you can say, well, it's because my husband died, that's really important. But the whole planet could have died. You know, we, it could have spread everywhere, who knows? And you know, you really realize people are fragile, life is fragile, the forests are fragile, the planet is fragile, everything is fragile. We could all lower our voices. So now I think we're going to meditate because I'm starting to sound too um, preacherish for me. Is that all right with you if we do a meditation? You want to stand up and sit down and uh, uh, stretch yourself a little bit? Do you need two minutes to go and get a drink of water or something? Take two minutes, go get a drink of water or something.
how many people here are familiar with the Buddha's sermon on impartial kindness? Know it. How many people don't know it? Good. That's terrific. Because I am thrilled that there are at least some people who don't know it. So I want to do an experiment. No, it's not an experiment. It's a game. No, it's not a game. It's an experience together with you. It is said that there are actually, if you read some of the, the some of the Buddha's sermons, for the most part, his sermons are parables. He was a wandering teacher and he told stories about this person and that person and they all made the same point about um, everything is impermanent, that clinging for thing, to things that, you can't, that don't last is the cause of suffering, that embroidering uh, on top of our pain makes it worse, that it's possible to cultivate a mind that says, okay, this is happening. What, what's the best way I can do it? That peace of mind and heart is possible in this very lifetime, in a world with all, with all kinds of problems in it. And it's thrilling. But most of his sermons are not instructional. There are some instructional ser ser sermons. One of them, if you want to look it up, is called The Sermon uh, on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. You could do that. One of them is called uh, uh, Mindfulness for Householders, a householder sermon, where if you're not a monk, what are the rules for what's a good idea for how you should live? But there's another sermon, my favorite one to teach from, and Tolan's going to put it up, but not yet, Tolan, in a minute, is going to put it up. And uh, I'd like for you to imagine, especially if you don't know it, that uh, you are suddenly in a uh, forest grove, in a jungle grove 2,500 years ago with a group of mendicants following the Buddha and practicing what he's teaching. And he, the Buddha is said to have given this sermon. You'll notice that it doesn't, um, well, I'll tell you that the first time I heard this sermon, and saw its instructions about loving impartially, I thought to myself, but he didn't give any instructions. He just said, do it. And when we do meta meditation, we have instructions for it. But they were made up later on. He didn't give the particular instructions that we do. That's a later edition. But he did say these words. So. If you want to watch the word, you can do two things. You can uh, open your eyes and Toland will put the Metta Sutta up and you can read it on the screen and I'm going to read it to you. And then you have a choice. You can close your eyes and pretend that you're in a jungle grove 2,500 years ago hearing these words and thinking, wow, what do I want to do about that? Or you can keep the eyes open 
and read along. And we're all muted, so it won't matter. But you can get to say them at the same time that I do. And they're really lovely to say together. So here we go. Take a breath. We're in a forest grove. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near or far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any other state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. How many people just heard that for the first time? Oh, I'm so pleased. You know, I'm thinking... I'm looking, how many people here? I'm looking at another page. How many people just heard that for the first time? Great, 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 great. Great, great, great. So we could think back and go over it. Maybe we'll do that next time. But what I would like to do for the next little bit of time, I'll leave some time at the end, is do the meditation that we have come to do based on that teaching. So let me just say this beforehand. I think that the summary of this whole thing is in the lines that say, wishing. May all beings be at ease. Wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease. If our minds felt glad and safe, I think this says, we would then be able to look around us and say, look, all beings struggle, all beings suffer. 
just like I do. And all beings want, as I do, to lie down in peace and wake up in peace and feed their family and celebrate births and memorialize deaths. When our minds are clear, when we feel glad and safe, we wish well for everybody and hatred dissolves. I think the last line that says is not born again into this world, I like to interpret is not born again into a world of suffering. This born again into a world of um, sisterly and brotherly love. So here's the, here's the, uh, here's the practice that we'll do with it. Sit in a way that's relaxed. And close your eyes and feel the world around you and feel the air around you and feel your breathing body sitting in the position that it's sitting. And I won't say anything for a few minutes because I've said a great deal of things and I feel like maybe everybody's mind is barraged with too many words. So I'll be quiet for some minutes and I hope that you'll bring your attention to the simple awareness of this body sitting here now being breathed. loving-kindness meditation that people have adopted from this teaching is the recitation in one's own mind to oneself of blessings 
and normally starting with a blessing for oneself based on the awareness that the natural instinctual hope of living beings is to continue to live and be comfortable. We want that for our kin and we want it primarily for ourselves maybe at some later time, equally for our kin, but to begin with, for ourselves. And phrased as the simplest of blessings, I suggest that you say to yourself in your mind, may I feel safe. May I feel content. May I feel strong. May I live with ease. Each time you say a phrase, I invite you to really try to feel the intention in your body. It's a prayer, really. And I invite you to say it for yourself ardently, as one might a prayer. May I feel safe. May I feel content. May I feel strong. May I live with ease. I'll be quiet and I'll invite you and encourage you to continue to make those four intentions for yourself for safety, contentment, strength, and ease. One after the other, one after the other, for the next minute or so.
maybe finish this next set of four blessings. May I feel safe. May I feel content. May I feel strong. May I live with ease. Think of someone that you love unrestrainedly, un, in an uncomplicated, wholehearted way. Classically, one thought of one's spiritual teacher or one's gurus, but in a non-guru society, uh, and we are not monastics, people often think of their sister or their mother or their grandmother or their partner, or their child, someone that they 100% really completely ardently wish for those things. And imagine that person in your mind space, your child or your grandchild or your great-grandchild. But wish ardently for that person. May you feel safe. May you feel content. May you feel strong. May you live with ease. Continue to do that. There's something about saying four phrases rhythmically over and over again, which soothes the mind of the blesser. Think of another person that's dear to you. Thinking of someone that's dear to us and wishing them well completes a connection of authentic love connection that uplifts the mind, makes us feel awake and alive in the moment. Think about that person as if you could really put your hands on them and say, as one would in a benediction, 
May you feel safe. May you feel content. May you feel strong. May you live with ease. Classically, in this practice, one invites into one's mind someone who um, is a person that you recognize that you don't have strong feelings about, you're not in an intimate relationship with, um, someone that you recognize and that's in your life in some way. I always think about the woman who's been cutting my hair for 10 years, who I know a little bit just through our interactions, who I don't think about and bless every day. But when I think about her for some period of time when I am sitting and practicing meditation, I realize that I feel quite really fond of her and how dear it is that I know her children who are uh, both married now, who I knew since when they were in high school and not personally, but who I was privy to their news and she was privy to mine and how diligent she is about keeping her business going and make those, I make those wishes for her. And I realize that in the wishing to her, may you feel safe, may you feel content, may you feel strong, may you live with ease. I realize that I feel that in my heart, that my heart is edified and lifted up by the pleasure of knowing her and blessing. And wish that person in your mind, sometimes I think of my dentist, the woman who's the postmaster in my small town people I don't think about a lot. But when I think about them with goodwill, I feel better. Try that out for a while.
the whole world of people that we know. There's people that by people that we recognize and know a little bit, like the dentist and the hair cutter, and people who are dear to us because they're in our families or because they've become kin to us. Or, and then the whole world of people that we don't know at all, who represent the whole world of people who are just like us in wanting to live and get up in the morning and take care of their family and not be in pain and participate in birthdays and funerals and honorings and celebrating. So if for the last few minutes that we sit together, you could stretch your imagination to not thinking of individual people, but all the people in the world, near and far, in the sermon it says, may all beings be at ease whatever their living nature, whether they're big or little, near or far, already born or to be born, may all beings be at ease. holding the whole world with goodwill matches the traditional phrase with which I started my uh, goodwill practice, blessing practice in 1985. This saying of blessings as a way of calming the mind and inclining it in the direction of goodwill. And the traditional phrase that I said in those times was, may I be free of enmity and danger. And over the years, that phrase got changed for different sensibilities and Western ears. But I really think it's a good phrase because what I'd really be like to be is free of enmity, like for nothing to be my enemy, no one and no thing. Things are potential challenges. Everything is a potential challenge. But may I be able to meet it as a friend
Then open your eyes and look at some people and pick out a phrase that you've just said, either may you feel safe, or may you feel content, or may you feel strong, may you live with ease. And in your mind, pick out a person and you look at the person and you say that, send that phrase from your heart to theirs. And it's hard to tell on Zoom who's looking at whom really, but it doesn't matter because you feel good. So just let's take a minute or two to bless each other. You can look on other pages. May the merit that comes from us coming together and studying and accompanying each other, listening to Dharma, rolling it around in our minds, sitting quietly and feeling our own bodies, discovering in ourselves a deeper and deeper understanding of impermanence. May the merit that we accumulate means may we take everything that's good that's edified us in this period of time and manifest it in our lives so that wherever we go, where we touch people. It's like inoculating people. May we be emissaries or vaccinators of goodwill in the world, all of us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.